I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Welcome back to Inside Sources. This is Taylor Morgan joined by Mara Carabello filling in today for Boyd Matheson. Mara, things are happening in China. After weeks of nationwide protests, China is moving away from its zero COVID policy. So the question is, is the government in China giving in? To these protests, or are they simply coming to terms with reality? And how is this going to impact the economy in China and abroad? Uh, joining Inside Sources now, we have an expert. Zhong Young Zoe Lu is a fellow for International Political Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Zoe Lu, welcome so much to the show. What can you tell us about these protests in China and how it has or hasn't impacted the government changing policy? Hey, Taylor and uh, Mara, thank you very much for uh, having me. It's always a great pleasure to join programs at uh, KSL News Radio, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be uh, speaking with audience uh, for um, insider story, insider sources. Um, the question that you ask with regard to you know, the protest and the linkages between protest and, and COVID, I think, is a crucial one, right? So we are at the moment where um, we, are, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are debating both inside, uh, you know, the United States and uh, from the perspective of China as well, like what exactly drives the Chinese government to change the policy suddenly? Is it because of the protest or is it uh, or are there some other issues? So uh, let me begin with the protest aspect. So I, I do think that um, despite the protest was sparked was sparked by the fire in Wurumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. Uh, the deeper cause of that pro- the protest would be um, the cost and the, the social and economic toll on Chinese society and the Chinese people. And we've read in the news that uh, the Chinese economic numbers are going to shrink in, in shrink in, not by 5.5 percent growth this year but it have been downgraded to uh 3.3 percentage uh so from that perspective we are talking about uh you know 2.2 percent of chinese economic slowdown and given that the chinese economy is more than 17 trillion dollars we are literally talking about quite a large sum of uh, something mm-hmm. around the neighborhood of uh, 300 and uh, and uh, 80 billion dollars in lost GDP. So from that perspective, I think the pain is being felt at the individual Chinese people's level. 
Yeah, I think that that is an interesting comparison. Um, that the same dynamics seem to have existed. I, the world has changed since the '80s, but the last major set of of um, protests in the '80s, Utah, or excuse me, um, the United States and China had had a very strong relationship, and since China has diversified, as you suggest, their economic impact. So you, you that that makes sense to me that the protest sort of also coincided with China's perception that they're losing um, some viability. They they one of the things that was interesting from my perspective is there was very specific moves that were taken by the state council um, and they released a 10-point plan about um, some different restrictions. Could you take us through uh, some of the highlights of what has been modified or um, changed and, in fact, um, no longer required in terms of a COVID response? Uh, sure, absolutely. So uh, I would, uh, yes, you know, the state council's 10-point guideline, uh, the first thing I would want to say is that it's really it signals policy changes inside China. Within China, we can see it's a major change, but does, that does not speak any changes to international flight or, for that matter, international personnel, people to people, people flow. So uh, this does not this does not apply to say foreigners who want to come inside China. That that does not apply, right? So from that perspective, China is still relatively closed up from the rest of the world. However, domestically, we would potentially start to see mobility going. Up specifically because the government now no longer uh, require people to do cons- compulsory COVID tests, and they are no longer doing people to uh, um, forcing people to go to the forced the uh, forced quarantine facilities, and they also implemented guideline guiding measures to say local government cannot uh, impose additional QR code checking points um, because it's no longer necessary, and in Guangdong province, we've already seen uh, changes have already happened. However, the cautious point of that would become would be how the Chinese people would respond to it. Because on the one hand, yes, the government now tells tells the Chinese people now you can basically you know the negative negative COVID test result is no longer no longer necessary. Then the consequence for Chinese people would be well, then does how could I know if I am safe? How could I I know if I can safely go into the grocery store. So I'm not exactly sure how exactly this is going to play out, especially given Chinese people, a lot of Chinese people are still very suspicious about the vaccine and uh, they are very, the the, the misconceptions of of COVID and in particular how how devastating the pandemic could be Mm. is still, you know, an unknown um, question among many Chinese people. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Yeah. Here in the United States and even in other countries, uh, pundits, reporters, some have pointed, uh, for example, Christian Shepard with The Washington Post has pointed to China Mm -hmm. and has promoted 
China's one or zero tolerance, zero COVID policy as a demonstration that China has a superior political system because China (laughs) was able to enforce lockdowns and testing when, you know, the rest of the world can't. How do you think the reversal of the policy is going to impact uh, other countries and how they deal with COVID? That's a great question in terms of how that might uh, influence other 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 country, right? So today I um I, I read an article uh in in which uh, the Economist, the Beijing bureau chief, uh, David Rennie, he um was interviewed and he gave an interesting explanation about why zero COVID is ended right now. So uh, and I tend to agree with him in many ways. Um, so it's. It, it, you know, it happened at this particular moment, but perhaps the bigger the bigger reason behind it is part of that is because of it's already extremely costly for local government, and the, on the other hand, there are already a lot of signs that COVID zero COVID policy is very difficult to implement, and on top of that, it's not actually effective. There are a lot of people inside of China. Um, uh, just by talking with friends and connections back in China, I started notice that people here here and there in Beijing and Shanghai elsewhere, they started to have symptoms despite that. And now that government no longer require people to do COVID tests, they started to say, oh, okay, so then I'm not going to do tests anymore. So from that perspective, no test, you don't know if you got COVID or not. Therefore, you know, we case, reported cases or statistically the number will naturally go down. Right. So from that perspective, I think I'm, I'm not exactly sure how that is going to play out. However, from the rest of the world perspective, perhaps the lessons already been learned in the sense that, you know, eventually you just have to take care of yourself and practice yeah. social distancing, practice self-quarantine if you don't feel feel comfortable. Right. Hey, Zoe Lou, you spoke of this a little bit earlier, but do you have any insights um, from your Sources and family about has the mood changed? Is it, are, it does it still feel like it is, you know, how I would describe uh, where we were a couple of years ago where it was always top of mind. There was a sense of fear. Um, the, the mobility was less. It, has the mood changed, the general mood changed on the streets? Or is there a different conversation that um, was sparked by this or or? Did it not make a difference at sort of the street level? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have to say, you know, China and the Chinese people are extremely diverse and heterogeneous. For that specific question, it really depends upon who you are talking to, right? So, for example, like when I talk with my friends and the families, uh, many of them were they, 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 they were they were they are not living in Beijing or Shanghai, the, the top tier cities that might be affected uh, severely. So, through the entire pandemic period. Um, you know, many of them did not experience a severe lockdown. So from their okay. perspective, their normal life was actually not terribly, uh, you know, impacted to the same extent as Shanghai. So, you know, policy changes might influence them uh, to a lesser extent. And from their perspective, what they are really concerned about is not necessarily zero COVID policy, but really the long-term 
um, perspective of the Chinese mm. economy. Yeah. And right. they are deeply concerned about their job security. Sure. And even some of my civil service friends, they are concerned about, well, am I going to get a pay cut? Yes. Okay. So, the, so <laughs> Thank you so much for your insight. We have to we have to end it here. Zanyang Zoe Liu, uh, who is a contributor to the Council on Foreign Relations. We really appreciate you having time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. Come up, another serious topic, anti-Semitism, but we have Rabbi Zippel with us, so stay tuned. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.